Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Skorzynski, and today I'm joined by Claire Horner. Claire Horner is known in Atlanta as ATL Shrink and the Relationship Translator, therapist and advocate for clients seeking relief from sexual assault and those pursuing healthy relationships. She's licensed as a professional counselor with a dual master's, and there has been so much hurt and abuse within the church that she thought it best to gain particular education in this area. So she pursued a degree in professional counseling, but also one that brought psychology and theology together. Her experience growing up in a fundamentalist religious atmosphere also provides a level of understanding that can assist those healing from doctrines that went too far, contribute to abuse, or were potentially isolating in ways that have made moving into adulthood complicated. After completing the degrees by early 2004, she became licensed on Valentine's Day in 2007. In the past 17 years, she has found providing group therapy, recovery from toxic religious experiences, including abuse and sexual assault, and working with intercultural and interracial couples to be particularly rewarding. Her work in corrections at the start of her career fueled her passion for assisting all people to raise their awareness of how to better care for themselves, to reduce the stigma of mental illness, and to slow down generational traumas. As a new endeavor in the summer of 2019, she decided to start the Atlanta Sexual Trauma Specialist Database. The networking community serves as a resource to one another and the community who needs access to a single place to find providers. The services that specialists offer span psychotherapy, psychiatry, alternative medicine, functional medicine, massage, among others, and can also include trauma-informed businesses. As it develops, it's hoped that the STS database will be a source for speakers to area groups on the topic of sexual trauma, both on the sides of prevention and healing. A trauma-informed business may be a salon, tattoo shop, or a real estate company that has been trained in practices that would make it easier for a person with complex PTSD to utilize their services in a minimally triggering atmosphere. The STS database is excited to have been a part of a specialist roundtable discussion in the upcoming documentary, Unlearning Sex. It is being released in educational institutions and will be hitting the film festival circuit starting this fall. 
When she's not tending to her practice, she's likely hunting Greg Mike's newest graffiti masterpieces in Atlanta with her photographer mate, re-watching Chef's Table, playing the next Halloween creation, or tackling the technological learning curve of becoming a voiceover artist. The approach Claire uses in counseling stems from the following belief. We are not bits and pieces that work separately, but a compilation of physical body, complex mind, emotional information center, relational motivations, or not, sexual energy, and the spiritual glue that brings together these aspects of life. These systems break down during grief, trauma, life transitions, and other experiences that create disturbing symptoms. The therapeutic process seeks to restore the way these aspects work together, thereby reducing the symptoms, calming emotional storms, and providing choices for the future. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation with Claire. Um, I know I'm a little bit more rambly than normal because she was blowing my mind with every single answer she gave. Uh, but I, I definitely want you guys to connect with her and follow the content that she's putting out through her social channels and on her new YouTube account. I think it's going to be really helpful. I do want to just add a quick note to those of you who may listen to this episode, to those of you who may listen to this episode and like me, I uh, think that she may be a good fit to discuss uh, some of your situations and you may be interested in even reaching out for, you know, work as a, as a therapist. And so um, the only note I want to give to that is she is restricted to working within the state of Atlanta. So unless you're local to the area, um, she cannot work directly with you as a therapist, but she definitely does have a huge list of resources she could refer you to uh, if you wanted to connect with her and the content she's putting out through her social channels through her social channels is going to be a big help. And I know that there's a lot of content and value that you can pull from there. So uh, be sure to check it out either way. Um, I think this episode is an amazing, amazing episode. I know I had quite a few interesting uh, things that came to light when I was uh, talking to Claire and I know it's going to be a big help to you guys. So be sure to enjoy the episode. Uh, let me know what you guys think. Be sure to leave a review if it is something that you do enjoy and appreciate. And uh, without further ado, here we go into the episode. All right, Claire, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. I've been wanting to have you on for a really long time, and I'm excited to talk about this topic. Um, I gave a little bit of context about who you are in the introduction, but can mm. you just introduce yourself to the audience and let us know exactly what you do? Sure. Yeah, Eric, I've been looking forward to this talk, and you know, it's been delayed a little bit with our fun COVID land. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I'm Claire Horner. I'm a licensed professional counselor, which is the license in Georgia. I'm in Atlanta. I would consider myself, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, a therapist, and you know, my, my company is ATL shrink. And so, you know, I, I named myself that for a lot of reasons. I do call myself a shrink. And one of the key things about that is that I, you know, I help people shrink their problems. So, you know, there's the traditional old school sense of that, which I think is just kind of funny. But, um, but yeah, so, um, my background is, you know, I have two master's degrees actually, and you already mentioned that I chose to, I've always been in the, what would be called, you know, the secular world right, right. <laughs> and, the, and the, you know, the, the Christian Protestant world, you know, my foot in both, both arenas. And so, you know, I did get a, a separate um, I got a master's in professional counseling, but I got a, that separate master's in Christian psychological studies in order to bring those two together and to, to be able to define what is a, what is like pathology? What's the difference right. between somebody using the, the Bible, for instance, as a tool and a, a help for the relationship and when it's used for uh, a tool to harm 
I've had, you know, couples come in and one, one spouse wants me to use the Bible to beat the other one up. And, right. you know, that's not going to happen. So, yeah. And I started in corrections. So, you know, I, I wondered whether I wanted to stay in that space. It was actually too intensely spiritually oppressive. Mm. Um, to be honest, and my boundaries needed a lot more strengthening because before I could even do that. Right. Um, but I definitely enjoyed working with people in that field. I am definitely curious how you ended up specifically focusing in on the Christian side. So you specialized mm -hmm. with sexual trauma therapy around abuse in the church. Um, and mm -hmm. first, I'm just curious: are you are you still a believer? Do you are you did you grow up in the church world? Did you grow up outside that world and just notice an inordinate amount of problems within it and decided to pursue it, or what was kind of the path that led you to focus on? The, specifically the church side of things? It was my experience within what I would now consider a fundamentalist religious atmosphere. Okay. The church I was in was non-denominational. My parents were, one was Presbyterian and one was Baptist, so they mm -hmm. picked non-denom. But in the end, there was, you know, when I looked back as, as an adult, even as a young adult, there was so many things I didn't learn. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to talk about because, you know, I don't want to, for instance, throw my parents under the bus or throw, you know, people under the bus who really did teach very good things, you know, and were not toxic, but that's the difference, right? It's the right. difference between toxic religious practices and not the question of, you know, whether I'm a believer now and those kind of things, that is such a long conversation. <laughs> I am not against the church in any, in any form, but I am against toxicity and abuse. And I've just seen so much of it and trying to p help people heal from that. I just, I, I knew that my experience in being in, in such a repressive sexual environment and the way that women were treated and the, the structures around that, how that harmed me. It helped me in some ways, kind of the protectiveness, the isolation from like real world things, so to speak. Y'all can't see my hands, I've got quotes going. <laughs> <laughs> I talk with my hands a lot. That's Podcasts right. are interesting. But there's so, so much that's taught that as kids, we, we don't know how to interpret. And the authority within religious communities and within the church, like when I speak church, I speak capital C, like the church collective, that, you know, authority is not questioned. That's a huge problem. Right. You know, um, I definitely think, for instance, that most pastors are narcissists on some level, but they sort of have to be yeah. in order to manage that level of, of scrutiny or, or carrying the load of that many people. Right. Well, that's kind of the problem that you see with any I've actually, I've had this conversation before and I'm so glad you're saying it because, you know, it, I feel like some people look at me with a side eye when I say that is there's a lot of positions in the world, whether it be law enforcement, um, you know, military mm. pastor, when you're in a role where you have to be somewhat of the, the captain of the ship, the disciplinarian yeah. in a lot of cases, things like that, there are, when I'm you not have saying to cut all, through a lot of data, right? Like doctors. It, 
Exactly. It, it, all, any of those types of roles, it's not that there's not good people in those roles, but you have to look and say, there's going to be a larger amount of people who are not great people drawn to those positions because they see how much power you can have in that role. And exactly. so you have to, you have to have an understanding that like, there may be a lot of people who crave to be like the position of being a pastor without having like maybe the moral positive side of like, why you'd want to help people you know mm -hmm. what I mean? they they may like right. the idea of being the authoritarian figure that stands behind a pulpit or they might be the person that likes serving people and sometimes it can be hard to figure out which side of that somebody's on absolutely focusing in specifically on the church you know you talked about obviously there's some there's definitely some major issues within you know the church at large with the way you know historically people have dealt with women how they've dealt with abuse um, obviously there's been a lot of things about how you know children are raised within these types of environments and things I'm fascinated specifically with you because you do bring that professional side and there's a lot of people and I kind of wanted to talk about this first thing there's a lot of people within churches that consider themselves to be counselors or advisors or mm. you know they they offer help Stevens to people. ministers right and so I'm I'm curious to hear from you um, as a professional your your you know your opinions and feedback and you know positions on a lot of these topics so obviously sexual trauma is a huge issue outside the church we're not saying it's solely inside exactly. of the church but can you talk about how sexual trauma tends to look inside of a church culture. And I know you don't speak specifically to the independent federal Baptist movement, but mm -hmm. we talked very, you know, at length beforehand and you said, well, it sounds similar to any other negative religious environment right. and the way it plays out. So how does sexual trauma usually reveal itself inside of a church environment? And obviously it's different enough to have an emphasis in your work along that line. Mm -hmm. So, so what is different about church um, sexual trauma versus, you know, normal, you know, sexual trauma? I would say. <laughs> easy question. So, really easy. Yeah. Question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the God factor hmm. in, in terms of, you know, validating what is being done. You know, the, the Bible has always been used to attack and to ostracize and to harm in addition to people trying, you know, using it for healing and blessing and, and those kind of things. You know, there's this entity that created all things that perpetrators put at their back of all the decisions that they're making. And right. to question that is, is not, not allowed, first of all, depending on the level of toxicity in that, in that system, I guess is a way right. to put it. And the other piece that I think is distinctive is, you know, families are raising their children from birth in the, in most communities, in most religious communities. And, or at least the majority are, and, and often multiple children in one family. And, and I'm kind of speaking stereotypically, I guess. Yeah, right. You know, but, um, no. and so when you have those messages from birth, the idea of questioning them, not only is it not allowed, but then you have the authority surrounding, you know, you know, you're supposed to lean on authority, whether that authority is God or whether that authority is the elders of the church, 
in the church I grew up in, women were not allowed to speak from the pulpit and they weren't allowed to have certain roles. And, you know, my mother was a, a secretary for, you know, my, almost my entire life. There were four secretaries among the, you know, the leadership. And so, you know, I was privy to a lot of things, but I w- our family was also very watched. And so there, there was a different layer of that. But the things that are learned from birth, you don't tend to question. And if you're isolated or you're in the, what I call the Christian bubble. Right. Yeah, which the Christian bubble is, I mean, that's a core tenet of independent Baptist churches is um, one of the doctrines that they hold to is the doctrine of separation. And that's basically you separate Mm. from anyone who's not like you. You separate Mm -hmm. and they have different degrees of separation. And they actually call it that. Yeah, it's called the doctrine of separation. And there's four, I think there's, it's been a long time since I've actually heard someone talk about this because I've been out for a long time, but there's basically four degrees of separation. Um, and so they literally in certain IFB churches, they break it down to like who you don't affiliate with and to what extent mm-hmm. you don't affiliate with them. And, you know, you don't read outside of the group. You don't listen to preachers right. outside of the group. You don't go to other, you don't go to a non-denominational church or a Presbyterian or any other church that's not like you. Yeah, there was, there was such a big stress on like Catholicism being a cult and right. denominations being cults. Right. And you know, that we were, we were just, you know, studying the Bible. Right. That's all. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and again, I think obviously you can't have a religious group without having differences from other religious. Like if, if we all agree that all religions are the same, there wouldn't be different religions, you know, so you're going to have theological differences. But one of the things that bothered me, because I was a question asker my entire life, like, I, I always was like, why this? Why that? Why are we doing this? And one of the things that always bothered me was like, if we have the truth, why are we so scared to engage with other people because Mm. if if we have the truth and they don't have the truth and we have a conversation where we're both trying to find the truth, the conversation's only going to get us closer to what we already believe. It's not going to threaten what we believe. Because truth is truth. Love is love. That's simple (laughs) enough. (laughs) So you talk about from a child, this kind of stuff, like in not questioning, you know, obviously you have the, in the, in that movement, they call them the men of God, you know, the, the pastor Mm -hmm. behind the pulpit, that's your authority in life. Um, Can you talk a little bit about maybe how religious, you know, being in a strict fundamentalist background and upbringing can kind of prepare someone for abuse in maybe ways that we don't realize and kind of, we, you know, we talk about grooming a lot, but how that can mm-hmm. kind of groom you to be prepared for an abuse of that kind of power? I think it does have, there is a, a role or a place for um, looking at what it, what is being taught and the degree to which like for instance, you know, let's, let's take the idea of, you know, women are in charge of where men's thoughts go with modesty and that kind of thing. If you're brought up in that, then, and you're responsible for what men do, for instance, if you're hearing that, like I did, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, all the way up, you know, that, that actually structures, that's just one aspect. It structures how you think about yourself. 
it structures whether you have authority with your own body. And if you're question, already coming in questioning those things, that is fertile soil, I guess you might say. Right. You know, it's, it makes you already vulnerable because right. your autonomy is questioned from, from the beginning. Yeah, no, that does make a lot of sense. And so essentially, it's kind of, you know, it's something we've talked about on the show a little bit, but it's, it's kind of that purity culture The you know, your skirt, Mm -hmm. if your skirt is above your knee, Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're dressing like a harlot, you're doing these kind of things. And, you know, or if you go to the wrong party, or if you do, you know, I hear a lot from people I talk to as a result of the show who, you know, the first thing that their pastor asked when they say, oh, I was assaulted was, where were you? What were you wearing? Mm-hmm. Who were you hanging out with? You know, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of the thing that lays that foundation of, of like, if you're already exactly. in a position to blame yourself and not the abuser, abusers can flock to that and say, that's a perfect opportunity for me to embed myself and and really get connected with someone. And not questioning that authority and then not... And then, and then, you know, there's always the layer of threat that's involved. Almost always there's a threat that's stated or not stated, you know, but there's, there's other things like the twisting of the manipulation, taking something that is a half truth and twisting it. Like for instance, fathers abusing their daughters by saying, well, I'm, I'm your father and I need to teach you how to be a, a good sexual partner. And, you know, this is why. And so, you know, it it takes, it takes the intuition of the child and, and destroys it. Right. And that would be something if I had to pull one major thing out, it's, it's that lack of autonomy, but it's, there is no trust in self at that Mm -hmm. point because of the twisting and the, the manipulation in order for that adult's gain. Right. Now I, I do believe that there are people who abuse another. Let's take let's take a, a sibling. Okay. You know, their siblings sometimes, you know, experiment with each other or or kids experiment with each other. Yeah. But if there is if there is a lack of a power differential, the likelihood of trauma is way less. Right. Huh. And so for instance, you know, a, a, a younger sibling could technically abuse an older sibling if there's a power differential in the right. family, if that makes any sense. That's, yeah. a, that's a longer conversation. But just as an example, like power differentials are insanely important in this, mm. in this arena. What are some ways, like, obviously in a church structure, like there is power differences. Like there's always, you know, if you're a teenager, a youth pastor, if you're, you know, attending Mm -hmm. the church, like the pastor, the assistant pastor, deacons, elders, whatever that layout looks like, how do you recognize the difference between, okay, they're just an authority. And then how do you recognize when there is something negative there? Like, how do you recognize maybe that there is some kind of predatory nature to what they're doing. Is there, can you notice it in body language? Is it like, oh, they, is it just that gut feeling that you have to rely on? Because, you know, sometimes someone will have a gut feeling, but someone else doesn't. So, you know, how does that, how does that play out? How do you recognize someone before something like, something like this happens, you know? As, as a child, an adolescent or an adult? 
um, why not both? <laughs> let's talk about both because I think both are important. Well, let's bring in asking questions. What if you, even if it's not about any of this, like how are questions addressed in a, in a healthy environment? Questions are welcomed, especially from children. And there, it's not you're to be seen and not heard, for instance. Right. And you know, granted, I'm sure that kind of get there's a, there's a blurring in there of kind of my right. belief system. I'm sure, but but that would be a telltale sign in in other in other areas. Like, are is there freedom to question it about whatever the topic is, and what happens when somebody gets in trouble? Mm. What is that process like? Is there a process? Is the person in authority, is there one person in authority or is it a team? That's important. If someone is considered like a guru type, that's a red flag to me, especially in a church. God, you know, in, in traditional thought, and again, like I said, my, my, my path is, you know, I, 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 even in con considering coming on this podcast, I was like, how are people going to interpret <laughs> <laughs> where I'm coming from. So right. just as a caveat, in a church structure, God should be the head. Mm -hmm. If the, the pastor or that key person in authority is really seen as the one, that's, right. I think that's a problem. I believe yeah. that's a problem. And that that creates, some of that creates that in secrecy, you know, our doors closed with one-to-one mm -hmm. -one person, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. Um, are there what ha with that gut feeling? You know, I was I was brought up that that gut feeling was dangerous mm. because it was feeling oriented, huh. and it's one know, of your biggest weapons <laughs> is that right? gut feeling, right? Right. And now, granted, I would probably consider myself, you know, having being you know, like growing up in that environment as an empath. <laughs> you know that I was I was absorbing all manner of things and having a real hard time filtering it out. That intuitive feeling is super important. And and like for instance, with kids, let's take you know the autonomy with your body. Like, are you are parents teaching kids or in the you know in church? Are they encouraged to hug other adults that they don't want to? Do they have autonomy over their body? There's a whole, you know, I'm sure there's a whole Facebook group on, you know, parent <sighs> moms or parents, you know, be advocates for, you know, their kids being able to decide who touches them. Yeah. In well, I any mean, even, kind of way. Well, I mean, even in that context, like, you know, there's in some of these churches, like it's other people's parents are allowed to spank your kid or, right. you know, that kind of stuff. Like, and mm -hmm. that's a major, like, I mean, <laughs> like, even more so than hugging someone, like to be disciplined in that way by, I mean, even one could argue from your own parents, but that's a whole another topic that's too, whole <laughs> but to be, to have that familiarity with other people and to give mm -hmm. that much access to your child, to other people. And that's access. I about, like that word. That, yeah. Access. Yeah, access. <laughs> well, and it's access that you forgive me. I just working through this in my brain, but that's access that you as a parent don't even have the right to give to someone to your child, you know, like that's your mm -hmm. child's, <laughs> that's your child's mm -hmm. body. So it's really, it's just a really interesting context. And, and I can understand why there's specifically a religious, you know, focus on your work, because it seems like 
there should be a lot of people who are focusing on the religious side of that because it plays a huge factor. And that's something just for me, I always end up getting way too personal on these shows and talk about myself. But, you know, that's for me, one of the biggest barriers for me with considering therapy was, you know, a therapist isn't going to understand all the layers. Like by the time I explain all the spiritual and emotional Mm. factors that play in, like, it's going to be like seven months from now and we'll finally scratch the surface of what makes me tick, you know? Yeah. And, and cause there's stuff you don't even realize like, and that's, mm-hmm. that's why I bring up the purity culture thing. Someone in, in the, in my Facebook group was bringing that up of the idea of all of the negative mindsets you're given surrounding sexuality can, mm-hmm. can play into being dysfunctional sexually later on in a whole Absolutely. host of ways. And so I, I'm, I was just wanted to give, and I appreciate you giving some context about, you know, why specifically that and why there is differences in how that plays out because the power structure of a church is very different and unique and you know even though it may be a variety of different denominations or churches abuse tends to play out the same way in any kind of structure um Mm -hmm. i know you specifically you're not so much someone who deals with the i wouldn't say you don't deal with the preventative side but a lot of your work is probably dealing with people who have already experienced some form of abuse unfortunately can you talk a little bit about one why you think therapy is such an important part for um, people who have been and how do people get into a position because obviously when you're dealing with authority figures who wildly overstep their bounds it can be difficult to trust someone who's in a position like you're in it can be difficult to go to a therapist Mm. or to you know someone who is in any kind of position of authority or you know to go i i actually talked to someone about that like the idea of going into an office with someone you know when maybe you were abused by a pastor in an office or things like that can you talk about that and how it can be helpful to people and maybe you know break down some of the barriers that people might have surrounding what you do okay another easy softball question (laughs) (laughs) well let me start with the the idea of you know yes i definitely people do come to me when they've been through something although people aren't always aware that they have been through something except Mm. that they're seeing symptoms some of the, you know, that will, you know, that kind of gets into the repressive side of things. And earlier I was, you know, we were talking about how I often see women coming in, for instance, like 35 to 45 is a, is a key time where they're, where women's children are going through a stage in life where they were abused and it triggers their memories. And, you know, something that they may not have even considered abusive, that's the other side people's definition of abuse, especially if you've grown up within it, they don't define it as abuse. Why would I need help? So there's, so there's that aspect, but yes, the, 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 um, the healing side is usually what I'm, what I'm helping with, but also if someone has been abused, especially through sexual assault and rape. Um, and I, I will say I, I, have moved away from abuse and, and using the language of rape and assault because it's actually what it is. But when people have been through that, their boundaries, especially sexual, they, it has damaged their boundaries in such a special way that, and if it's damaged their internal intuition and their relationship to their body and they shut their body off, the likelihood that they will be abused again skyrockets. Really? 
And so sometimes people come in and they're like, do I have a sign on my head? Hmm. And I'm like, sort of, you know, not wow. of your own making. But if you're, if you've been violated and, and someone has crossed into your body, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You know, you've been crossed, someone has crossed over into your psyche, your body, your spiritual, your soul. Yeah. yeah. Then those boundaries, if somebody doesn't help you put them back in place, then others will recognize that just by feel Hmm. perpetrators will see that by feel. And so the likelihood that someone's been, been raped or, assaulted multiple times is very likely because of that. That's fascinating. You say that um, someone I just interviewed and she, she talked about this on the show. It was, it, she was assaulted three different times, three different mm-hmm. locations, you know, dealt with three mm-hmm. different churches. And she was like, it felt like every 10 years, but you know, it mm-hmm. happened like clockwork. Like there's another thing. And it's like, it was exactly that. Like, do I have a target on my back? Is there a sign on my head? You know? And that's really interesting. You said that. Cause I think, I think when we do close off, we think that's protecting us when we shut down mm. emotionally and, and like, you think like, Oh, that's going to solve the problem. But it's right. really interesting to hear you say that when you shut off all the negative things, you're shutting off all the good things too. You're shutting off all of the, you're shutting off all your detection in that area. You're shutting off all of the things detection. that are important. And so that's really interesting. And that's not something that I would have ever thought of because I, I think a lot of people, that's their default is like, oh, I was abused. I'm never going to express this side of myself again. I'm never going to mm. be, you know, or I was raped. I'm never going to act, you know, in any sexual way again, you mm-hmm. know, but that doesn't, or the opposite. Protect you. Yeah. Or the opposite. Or I'm going to be hypersexualized. You know, that mm-hmm. we see that too. Well, oftentimes trauma, it, it's like, let's say you're like your head is, is connected into your body. Kind of like, um, <laughs> I hope it is. <laughs> like a, you know what a, like a, well, yeah, but like, like how a Christmas tree, like the lights in yeah. one section, you have to connect it to the next section. Right. But in trauma, it comes on un, unhooked. Mm. And so it's almost like we're, we're floating, our head is floating around and our body is somewhere else. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things that is, and, and therefore our detection system, again, like you said, is offline. It is right. literally offline. Mm. And so now it's, it's almost like, you know, we, we learn that something's hot by touching it, right? Right. Well, if we touched it, there are disorders where if you touch something hot, you don't feel it because your sensory system is off. Your whole hand is burned. Hmm. Well, it's, this, it's the same type of thing. If, if we turn off our systems, our detection systems, because, you know, the body went through something, something, something so horrific, either once or over the course of years, you know, we don't, we learn to not trust the body. And so we don't trust the data coming in. So we shut it off, which makes it that much more vulnerable to the next person who wants to cross those boundaries. So when you're thinking of, you know, what's the role of therapy, you know, I, I do think that most people without experience think of it like a vent session, like a really, like a prolonged year after year vent session. Right. Right. And it is so not that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that's, that, that there is a role for that, certainly, to, to be able to voice your, your anger about things and that kind of stuff. But 
what I do, I do personality reconstruction and connecting that body back to the brain. And, you know, sometimes I need other specialists to help that. You know, I need to, I need a team. I need to refer my client for body work or breath work, or they might need medication for a period of time in order to calm their nervous system. You know, and so I, I have, especially in, you know, all my years of, of doing this, you know, I have, I have resources and clarity about where I end and where somebody else's services might begin. You know, sometimes people need to go do body work before they do talk therapy mm. or talk therapy may not have the role for one person as it does for another person. So making a decision to seek a professional is a really important one. And also there's so many brands, if you want to think about it that way, right. you know, I, I am my own brand. <laughs> I will put it that way. I say, I, I hold your hand and kick your butt because, you know, it's, you're not going to get anywhere with me just, you know, holding your hand. Also in trauma, you don't need me kicking your butt all day, you right. know, trying to make you do something you're not ready for and take choice away from you when choice is what was taken, you know? So my role is often to remind people or show, show the path of making choices for themselves. And, you know, for me, talk therapy is super important with trauma because the language center is something that we don't need when we're in crisis. And so the language center shuts down. That yeah. part of the brain goes offline. And so in order to reconnect it, sometimes we need to fumble with words. We need to label things. We need to call it victim. We need to call it assault. We need to, to work towards saying the word rape because mm. all of that is taking power back right. and, and putting it back inside ourselves. And so to me, you know, there's, there's brain work that goes with, with, talk therapy. There is, you know, and I don't, I don't only do talk therapy. I, I incorporate somatic or body responses. You know, we're watching, we're, wa we're, re we're really to go back to that idea of, of reconnecting the body and the, and the, you know, putting the head and the body back together. Right. You know, we're trying to get those data systems back online. Or if they were never there to begin with, you know, a, another piece of talk therapy is that a lot of people were abused before their language was developed. There are many babies and toddlers who are raped and assaulted. So if you don't even have your language developed yet, how are you going to formulate that in your own mind? And so sometimes we need to talk about impressions. Sometimes we, I need to help define, you know, that, that ache somebody has in their side that was, or in their neck where maybe they were held in a certain way during the abuse. Mm. We need to put language to that and to validate it. Obviously a huge part of your work is that is the, the victim recognizing what they experienced and and feeling that validation and you know you as a professional definitely are there to offer that validation and to say like you know what happened was wrong here's how we can address it and and work through that but a lot of times especially within a religious culture 
your normal people that are around you, your normal surrounding and environment, um, it can be really hard to get people to A, sometimes believe you, but it can also be hard for them to, to get them to validate that it was traumatic or that you should be maybe, you know, a lot of times you'll hear the label, you're just bitter or you need to forgive mm. and forget or, you know, mm. things happen, move on, that kind of language. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe from both sides, like one, should victims just get out of those environments completely? You know, what's your opinion there? Should they try to spend time trying to explain that to people or just try to, you know, get away from those people? Um, and then also on the other side of that, for a church or for, you know, for people who maybe haven't been abused, how can you create and foster an environment where people can be comfortable to share with you what has happened and um, create an environment of, it's okay to talk about this kind of stuff and it's not going to be shut down with, you know, religious rhetoric or, you know, some kind of negative response. When victims speak up, when survivors speak up, I've, I've moved actually the word warrior. We can talk about that. When they do speak up, the next steps are super important. Unless you've been through it, most people are going to want to downplay it because they can't manage it within their own self. Mm. And they also may feel responsible to do something. And if they don't know what to do or it would cost them something, then they're going to downplay it. Mm. Yeah. So having processes in place beforehand and people knowing what those processes are will empower the person who hears what the, what the person has to say, what the victim has to say about it. If there's, if there's a culture support, if there's a culture of speaking up, if there's a culture, the culture is so important hmm. because it's preliminary. It's, it's, it's the environment to speak. Let's put it that way. If there's not an environment to speak, then this is not going to be welcomed. Right. Well, that's, and again, it's, it's, I, I shouldn't be shocked. I mean, it's just like 30 episodes in. I shouldn't be shocked <laughs> when there's like similarities to what people are saying because there are always mm. patterns and stuff. But that's one thing that um, I, I spoke with a, with a victim and she, she basically was saying what happened was like, and it goes both sides, like the good people will identify this stuff and say like, we just don't talk about that. And mm. people who are predators look at that and say like, here's an opportunity. And mm -hmm. so she basically shared, she was on the phone with her abuser and he knew mm. that the pastor in previous cases had not addressed, you know, reports of sexual abuse. And he said, you know, that pastor so-and-so is not going to mm. do anything you know that yeah. he's not going to do anything. He, he hasn't before. And so he used that knowledge of, we don't talk about it. We don't act on it. We don't do all these things to essentially establish more power over her yep. at the time. And so that's really interesting that you said that because, you know, it, it, I guess it's that validation thing. It validates the reality of like, that is a way that things play out. That's a way that people do take advantage of situations. So I really, mm -hmm. I just really like that you said that. I thought that was really interesting. Well, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't start with abuse. It doesn't start with a rape. Right. It, the, the environment has to be, has to be, has to collude with the abuser. If it's, if it's, you know, a chronic environment like that. Right. 
Well, kind of going down that track, we talked a little bit beforehand, um, like before recording about the way that like, when you grow up in a hyper, I don't necessarily want to keep using the word purity culture because I don't think that's necessarily the only way that it manifests itself. But when you talk about just a hyper strict, you know, maybe modesty culture is even a better word mm, or like yeah. a hyper strict, you know, repressed sexual, you know, when sexuality is very mm-hmm. repressed, there can be, you know, things that maybe aren't super sexual are extremely like feel extremely sexual or feel extremely taboo when you're growing up inside a movement like that a a friend a friend and I were talking maybe a year ago now and we were talking about like you know watching certain shows and like seeing a girl in a bikini to us was like Mm -hmm. whoa oh my goodness I can't believe this like this is so like you know risque you know and it's because that was so like seeing a girl in pants was taught to be that way so it was like it it triggered it, it set your brain in a way where it was like you know, it almost had the reverse effect of like, it didn't make women less sexual. It made us even more interested in <laughs> exactly. the sexuality of, of women. So because I, you I, also weren't being taught how to manage your, your body and your thoughts. Exactly. Well, you don't, yeah. Cause you don't talk about it because it's talking about an impure thought or things like that. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe talk about how you've seen maybe stigma around talking about, you know, sexuality or about your first kiss or even Mm -hmm. holding hands and things and maybe how that's been leveraged in a negative way against someone who's grown up inside these types of environments i'll I'll also share i remember um (laughs) i remember watching fame back in the day right and about dancers Mm -hmm. and um and my father came in and and that was the end of that show (laughs) like i wasn't allowed to watch dancers in leotards Right. Like that's their uniform. Like yeah. <laughs> that's not, right. that's not, that's art. Like how, so there was, you know, when you're exactly what you're saying, like if, if, if the, if this whole category of the body or maybe women's bodies are, it's usually specifically you know, <laughs> women's bodies, it's yeah. usually specifically women's bodies. Yeah. That, you know, it's, if they move, if they, you know, in some cultures, if they show their, their, the top of their wrist, like that's going to cause mm. an orgasmic, orgasmic explosion. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's what? A, that's a funny, that's a funny thing too, that you bring up is um, not to cut you off, but that's something that me and my wife have talked about a ton because we actually spent some time in India um, actually mm. doing missions work out there. And one of the things we're talking about is like so much of, of what we deem to be sexually, you know, like overtly sexual or things that we judge people on is so it's rooted in cultural stigma of like the reason that things become sexy or, or taboo is because we make them such like, like for, right. one of the big things that we talked about and I, I noticed it like, cause it was, India is a very modest culture. Like mm-hmm. women dress in very modest clothes, but they'll expose their stomach. And I was telling my wife, I said, it's funny that, you know, I don't know if I always say it's funny, but maybe that's not the right word. It's just really interesting that sad. you're, yeah, sad. Funny seems happier than sad to, to say that. But uh, mm-hmm. it's just really ironic. Like if you're in the U.S. and you see a girl walk by and her stomach's exposed, the cultural indication is like, you know oh, well, she's like easy or she's this or she's that. And it's like, but in India, like everyone has their stomach out. So no one thinks twice about it. 
And so mm. when you when you focus specifically, I think about that in in you know IFB culture. You know, growing up, it's like you know skirts below the knee were hammered so hard. And then when you saw a girl whose skirt was above her knee, it was like, oh, you know, like that's that's very shocking, you know. So uh, it's just interesting. This, in my this house, part. denim was evil. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot. There's a lot inside that movement where that was the case. Like, I mean, there's it was really big news like a few years ago when one of the big IFB colleges allowed people to start wearing denim on Saturdays. <laughs> it was I don't know why Saturday was the day, but uh. But it, but it was just, you know, there's definitely, that is definitely something that's a huge um, thing in there. So anyway, so I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting you were bringing up that, um, you know, making it taboo, making it super um, stigmatized. But Yeah, we, we definitely define that. And, and what's interesting is that when it's, when it's repressed too hard, then people flip to the other side and, you know, it's, it's that footloose <laughs> kind of thing yeah 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 but to speak to kind of a little bit more of the modesty culture you know i call it i and the impact on sexuality and and becoming an adult and and those kind of things i call it the the no 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 yes culture hmm. where you're supposed to say no until this magic ring ends up on your finger and you hmm. go through a wedding ceremony and suddenly your body's supposed to say yes now right you know, and, and there's no instruction. There's no, or at least not when I was growing up, it was just or, say or no. Not helpful instruction. Right. Right. There wasn't, there was a complete devoid of, of the body and what the body naturally does. Mm. You know, we could get into, you know, the, the shame around, um, around victims and survivors who have, um, who have orgasms during, during an assault. Right. you know and because the body's doing what the body naturally does yeah and you know the just the whole that whole area of body and sexuality and the connection to sex as an expression of self and you know none of that is taught it's just shamed hmm. yeah at, it's, at least for the majority right yeah, and that is definitely something that's. Um, I just had Dr. Jen. Um, I hope we're not saying her name wrong. Uh, Pal, I believe it's Palfi. Um, she wrote Men Too, and she mm. actually has a section. She she laughed because it's so early on in the book. Where she said it's such an important thing that's always comes up in these cases. That subject of involuntary arousal, um, mm-hmm. and she basically said, you know, a lot of times predators will use that to shame their their victim you know they'll yeah. they'll they'll you say well, you enjoyed it or you liked it see mm-hmm. you you know um and she said specifically with male victims where it's you know it's a much more evident sign for a male victim it, it's mm-hmm. something that can easily be held over their head it's really interesting like within this culture like i see it a lot and i just know this from talking to guys in that world too like and to girls too in that movement is like marriage is a really weird time because mm-hmm. you have a lot of times you have guys who were not allowed to ever talk about their about any kind of sexual desire or any of those mm-hmm. natural processes your body goes through and right. so they are trying to figure that out themselves typically through pornography or talking to other people mm-hmm. about it and then you have women who you know your body's been you've been told you know you've been told like oh you're you're pure you're this you know all of these buzzwords that like make you terrified of like anything violating that or changing that and then all of a sudden 
when the marriage night comes, you've got a guy who has no idea what he's doing, no idea what, how to actually, you know, take, he's thinking about like, oh, finally I get to do this. And then you right. have a, a girl who's like, I'm not ready to do this. And that's really not a uh, romantic way to start off a relationship. Um, and, you know, my wife and I have talked about that of like, we actually had a, a premarital counseling with a pastor who actually was very helpful in breaking down some of those like ideas very mm-hmm. quickly and saying like, mm-hmm. look, it's not, I don't know what either of you have been taught or, or told or any, but sex is not going to be this, like you flip a switch and it's easy, you know, yeah. it's not going to be, it's not going to be in, it was just really helpful. And we've talked about like, if we hadn't had that, it would have been a very mm. different experience going into it because like sometimes, you know, there's elements of sex that can be painful or there's things that mm-hmm. can be, or things that, um, one of the things that he explained like early on, he's like, sometimes things are going to happen that are funny and it's okay to laugh with each other. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to not be awkward and to, you know, and so that was really helpful. But I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who go into these relationships who were in very strict backgrounds and it can be guys without even knowing it can be very abusive, you know, in that mm-hmm. regard without, and they're just doing it because they don't understand that there's two players involved. Or in. they've also, there, there are two players and that, that it's, it's not a time where, you know, you, you've been waiting and now you get to, right. it's, it's still a conversation. It's still, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's the pleasure of both people yeah, and it's not like waiting to get a car, and now I finally get to drive. You know, it's it's yeah. a little bit different than that. So. Yeah, yeah, you still have to learn the road, and you gotta, you know, ask questions, and right. you know, all of those things that that you know. Now we have consent culture that's that's trying to help that. Yeah, and you know, what do you say? How do you ask? How do you make it playful? How do you, you know, how do you? listen when there's a no how do you what do you do with that and right. whose responsibility is that right i was married for 19 years and um or with that with the same person i was married for 14 we were together for 19 um and now i've been with with my partner for seven years and you know all of those conversations are super important and they're you know they, they can mm-hmm. be very different and the ideas around what you know a lot of times boys I'm speaking very stereotypically, very generally, you know, they're off, you know, doing things in private and, and like in my world and where I, where I grew up, the girls weren't, we were, you know, we, we may be talking about it, but we're not, you know, kind of going outside the, 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 the fold, so to speak, in terms of, uh, exploring and, and stuff like that. And if you did, it was super secretive and, you know, and again, your body isn't taught what to do. It's just shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, (laughs) shut it down, shut it down. Right. 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 And then you get to the point where it's like, okay, now you have to turn it all on, right at, right at once. (laughs) Yeah. and And there's so many, there's so many people to talk about kind of the, the later on what happens. There's so many women and people who, you know, they're in their mind, they want to connect with their partner. They want to be sexual, but the body is not getting on with the program. Right. Right. And you know, and, and it, it's, it's torturous, you know, not to mention if you've got 
assault or abuse or you know chronic molestation from a parent on top of that yeah and all the layers of of emotional you know baggage that can come along with all of that stuff yeah that's super exactly super important um so man i can't believe wow we may have to do a part two because we've, we've already talked. Well, about each it. of these questions but is like its own, its own, its own thing. episode. I, I want to dive in first. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to have you on at a second point because I think we could easily talk about, about this stuff for much longer. Especially um, if, you know, some of you, know, like in your Facebook group, if, if there are things that we, we didn't get to and, and didn't dive deep enough into, um, you know, that might be a way to go as well. Yeah. I, I do want to just really quickly dive into the practical side of, you know, there's a lot of people who want to know, you know, is, you know, with the, where do you, where do you start with getting help? Where do you start mm. with, with um, pursuing therapy? So one, I definitely want you to talk about the importance and I push this all the time. Um, and I have people call me and I'm like, you need to call someone who's like, an actual expert in this field. You know, I know I do a podcast and I know that, you know, I know that people are familiar with me, but I'm not a therapist. I'm not a legal consultant and I don't want to be, pretend I'm one of those things. So mm -hmm. can you, one, I want you to just talk really quick about the importance of seeing a licensed counselor therapist and someone who's Please. actually a professional. Um, and then also, you know, how do you find these people? Because like, I, someone told me, uh, a lot of people have told me you're dealing with really heavy topics. You know, I'm sharing some things that are, you know, that have, you know, deep stuff from my background. And so people are like, you need to see a therapist. And I literally am like, where, like, where do I find one? Mm. Do I look through a phone book? Do I find, do I Google, you know, therapist? That seems really sketchy. So, and then also it's a lot of people might think, you know, Hey, it's super expensive. Is there any way that I can, does insurance cover that kind of stuff? Can you just talk about the practical way that someone should go about starting that process? And I'm selfishly asking, cause I've been, I have no idea how that works too. So it's a, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing to hear about. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a million choices in, in trying to find someone. And I think that can be a really big asset, but it can also your expectation, you have to be real careful with your expectations in terms of what the timeline will look like. You know, sometimes people call me and it's taken them five, 10, 20 years to pick up the phone. And then they want to make, they want me to be the, the, the guru person who's going to like heal them, yeah, you know, by hour. having a five minute conversation. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And, and then you have logistics, you have, you know, when can they meet and does their insurance cover it? And yes, insurance typically, you know, it, it, depending on how good your insurance is, you know, can typically cover it. But in recent years, that's been very difficult and has even led me to go off of insurance panels because of their processes. That's a whole thing. Um, I'll talk about, I'll, I'll go more into that in a second. Um, but so I think managing expectations and looking at it as a process and a matching, what do you want to match? What, what are you looking for? Um, there are plenty of, I'm sure that there's plenty, I, I am sure there are plenty of blog posts on, you know, like what questions to ask therapists when you're calling, ask friends who have been through therapy, see what, what questions they're asking or what they, what they um, have found helpful. And because there's so many styles, so many brands, so many credentials, so many, you know, almost every therapist who works in trauma 
has some other modality that they're trained in. For instance, I do a lot of um, emotion freedom technique or tapping. You know, some people do EMDR, some people do uh, somatic experiencing. There's, I mean, I know, you know, some people aren't going to know what any of that is, you know, but there's lots of modalities. And so instead of getting overwhelmed by that, just look at it, look at it as a matching process. You might have to talk to several people. You might go see, have a first uh, session with three therapists once you get it whittled down. But it's, you know, it, it is, it's an investment and it's a time investment. It's an emotional investment. It's, it's a, it's a financial investment. And at the same time, you're already paying with your life. Mm, yeah. You're already paying with fit, probably physical ailments that are happening. So, you know, you're already spending time, money, and resources on skin issues, on heart disease, on mm. high anxiety or medication to, to or monitor. Or even in some cases, things. addictions that you're dealing with yeah. because of that Absolutely. Stuff, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. What's the cost of something positive versus the cost of something negative staying with you? Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, my fees are high, but I also have, there's a couple reasons for that. One, trauma work is, is, is very difficult or can't, let me, let me, let me back up. It can be very difficult and it is a process. So, you know, I'm really big on pacing. So for instance, when somebody either is, I was on the phone with someone this week who wants to come in and I was, she started to talk about what she's been through. And I said, let me ask you a question before you, before you tell me what's happened. I want you to make a, a choice. I want you to, I want to want you to consider whether you would like to talk about the logistics first and make sure that we match up on the logistics of time and office location and insurance or not insurance and fees and all of that before you say anything about what you've been through, because that's a choice that you need to be clear on because I don't want you to get on the other end of this call and feel like you shared a bunch of stuff and wait and spent a lot of emotional energy and then we don't match. And then you got to call somebody else. Yeah. You know, so I know those things I'm going to keep someone from, because of my experience, I'm going to keep some, someone from wasting their energy, their time and their money, but that, but they still may pay me a lot if that makes right. sense. But I also do a lot of groups and I also have low fee slots. Hmm. And so okay. that's how I offer back. And right. I do these things. I, I yeah. you know, I try to do free things and, and yeah. speaking things. And, you know, we have a, we have a very small group right now on like how to maintain trauma recovering during COVID hmm. because that's yeah. the season we're in, yeah. you know, yeah, no, that's Does that speak to, to speak to some of those things. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And it is, it's, it's, I told you before we got on the call, um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like telling your dentist, you know, you don't floss. So it's like, I was telling you, like, I had a <laughs> big stigma against this stuff till about a year ago. And it was actually mm. fun, it's super funny, but like the first thing that really destigmatized therapy was, um, I, I love like comedy like I love stand-up comedy and oh, I was listening to too. yeah so I was listening to a lot of like stand-up comedians podcasts and these really really funny guys really successful guys who are like doing things that like most people say like oh I don't have the 
I could never get up in front of someone and do this. I could never, I could never, you know, I could never be that funny. I could never be that likable. I can never be all these things, you know, every episode they'd have someone come on and I was like, uh, and they would be like, yeah, my therapist the other day, just casually bring it up. And it was just that kind of casual discussion about it with guys mm. who like I looked up to or looked as like, oh, they're, they've made it or whatever you want to say. And I was like, well, if they go to therapy, like it must not be that weird, you know, like, cause in my mind and my background, it was always like the people who don't have enough faith and who are, you know, sp- yes. you know or mentally not strong enough or don't have enough character. That was a big word. Mm. Like, like those people go to therapy, but like, not like healthy spiritual people don't go to therapy and and it's so backwards and like I look back now I'm like I should have been in therapy like seven years ago and I'm still trying to like figure out like I need to get started with something in that area but um but I think that's really helpful and it is like all of the things you mentioned are things that I've thought like well I don't want to pay someone to like talk about my problems like that feels you know that feels really weird and um you know or I don't want to you know I don't want to meet somebody and that I don't know and talk about it. I don't want to, you know, um, and even the side of like, well, I've trusted people in authority positions before, but now Mm. I have to really trust someone with like every, like everything that I've been. But here's the thing, not out of the gate. Exactly. Yeah. Please don't, please don't (laughs) trust me out of the gate. Right. Please don't. Like, I don't want you to, to assume that because I'm in this position that you need to walk in and tell me everything. Right. No, you need to get to know me and learn whether you can talk about other things. The same, what is the culture in my office? Right. What is the culture between us? And you know, see you if brought that's up compatible. Good, yeah, like you said. Yeah, right. yeah. You know, do I give you the choice whether to go into a hard thing or not? Do I respect no? Do I um, help you? How do I help you? You know, my, my thing is I join with mm. and, and, and help, help. I carry the flashlight or the map or something, whatever <laughs> metaphor you want to use. And, yeah. you know, and go with, I go with you. Right. Because it's not You're not mine. dragging them through their trauma again and saying, let's rehash no. everything that you went through. Yeah. No. And that may, you may know somebody, you know, there's a misconception that we have to talk about the details or we have to relive it. I'm not interested in you getting re-traumatized, but there are processes to help you cathartically finish. You know, one of the things, this is a tangent, but we'll go there for a second. Um, Trauma arrests all the systems. Mm -hmm. So the emotional system doesn't get to finish. It doesn't Mm. get to be validated. And so sometimes the way that we talk about it, it needs to like finish the cycle. If that makes sense. Like the, so sometimes PTSD, the, the rewind repeat experience of something by getting triggered is because the body and the mind are trying to finish it. Mm. And and it's so wanting you what to I want have that catharsis of like closure, if that's a good, is that and a good to word? Put the, it's, to, it's to pull the feelings and the language back into the system. Mm, okay. And to, so that your whole system is done with it instead of rewind, repeat, rewind, repeat. And so, you know, but I'm going to, I'm going to bounce back to, to something you said a few minutes ago, which is one of the questions to ask a therapist is, 
are you or have you been in therapy yourself? Mm. I welcome that question every single day. You know, I think it's, you know, if, if I haven't done my work, how am I going to understand where you're coming from? Right. How am I going to understand the difficulty of me posing a question to you and, and knowing what the limits are? And, um, you know, I've been through different therapists throughout the years. I did seven years of group therapy. I've done breath work. I've done, you know, I've done all kinds of things. And the personal experience of that has taught me so many things about what is, what is happening, even in, even in the client's body, if that makes sense. Not that we have the exact same experience. Um, but you know, the person on the other line, other end of the line should be able to at least give you a yes or no. Mm. I'm not, you know, you're, you're not asking them to go into what their therapy has been about or anything like that, but you do kind of want to have an idea. Have they been on the couch? Do they know how uncomfortable it is yeah. to sit with certain feelings? Or do they think that they're a guru who's going to yeah. solve your problems? Yeah. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure right. that's just as common to see, you know, sometimes in the therapy world as it is in a pastoral setting of like, I think I have all the answers to, to fix you, which is not yeah. a great space to be. So. I've had students like supervision students who I had one who refused to go to therapy. And I was like, you're not going to do anything good in this, in this field. I didn't say it like that, but there's the kick your butt side just came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you're, you're not going to be effective if right. you can't do your own self-awareness work. It's not going to happen. Right. And, and so, you know, that is, it's, I think it's, it's crucial. No, I think that's all really helpful. And, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm assuming you're only really doing like local client work right now in Atlanta, or do you do, cause I, I usually like to give away for people to connect with you. Mm. Um, but um, I don't know that, I don't know what all you would offer to someone, but can you just share like where people can find you and connect with you? And like, if they're interested in, you know, Maybe they are in the Atlanta area. I mean, there's plenty of listeners. I'm sure there's someone in that area. Someone wants to talk to you. Um, what's the best way for someone to connect with you? And like, maybe if that's, maybe after this episode, like you're the person they feel comfortable reaching out to, to start just to say, Hey, what do I need? Or what do you recommend? Or even to have that initial conversation. Exactly. Or like you what know. type of therapy would you recommend for me? I heard you mm -hmm. on the show. Um, mm -hmm. What's the best way for people to connect with you? And then I have one more question. Um, that I, that I want to ask before we, before we, um, end, cause I know, I know you've given me a ton of your time and I really appreciate that. So, sure. So, so yeah, so I'm, like I said, I'm in Atlanta. All my socials are at ATL shrink. I'm not, I'm not on Twitter very much to be honest. Um, and I've tried to, to gear up my socials a lot more, um, this year and I'm trying to do a lot of, um, more educational things that people can plug into. Okay. And I just started my YouTube channel last week. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I started mine like two weeks ago and I'm a videographer by trade. So that's really uh, slow on my side. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to offer meditations and, and things that are supportive things to, for my clients. Um, and sometimes even just my voice, they're used to my voice. And so, you know, I want to give, give ways for, for them to, um, to support their work, you know, when, yeah. when we're not in session. Um, but, you know, email is honestly, I'm still an email person. Okay. <laughs> so Claire Horner at Atlanta shrink.com. And my, my website's the easiest way to, to, to go there, which is www, obviously 
uh, at atlantastrength.com. Okay. And, and again, I'm open to having those initial conversations. Um, the other thing I want to mention is last summer, I started the Sexual Trauma Specialist Database, which is a networking group for sexual trauma specialists in Atlanta across fields. So psychiatrists, body workers, um, alternative medicine, functional medicine. And because I was finding, I was feeling like I was reinventing the wheel every time I wanted to refer a client to go seek other services. And so, and I don't like referring to people that I don't know. And so I started this networking group so that we can network with each other, but that we can also be uh, a resource for the community. And so that's, you know, my, me connecting people to other resources is, is a passion. And so um, on my website, I have interviews with other specialists in the Atlanta area. So if I'm not it, you know, somebody else may be. And so I'm trying to, to kind of get that going even, even stronger. Right. That's awesome. Um, I I do want to ask, I want to circle back because like, I can't believe I almost missed this one. It's a huge, it's a huge topic, but I, I did want to just really quickly ask you this topic because it's something, and I, I think I brought this up with the last two people I brought on who talk in this field. Um, so obviously, and man, talking to Dr. Palfi, um, who wrote mm-hmm. Men Too, one of the shocking things is, especially when it comes to um, child molestation cases or, or cases with pedophiles, the average um, abuser has uh, well over a hundred victims and mm. she she kind of blew my mind because I said well I know you have that one guy who you know had like over 150 and she said no that's not one guy she said that's the average which mm-hmm. is a shock I was like I I was trying to like just wrap my brain around that um, so obviously one of the topics with this is speaking out can help prevent something happening again um, when you're dealing with situations mm. of assault and so I just, I just want to ask you what your opinion is on this. I mean, obviously, I don't know if Atlanta is the same, but I'm assuming you're a mandate, like a mandated, mandated reporter, reporter with this mm-hmm. stuff. If it's actively, you know, within statute of limitations and you know all the all the ways that that plays out. But um, I am curious for like if someone comes to you who is saying to you if one of our listeners has someone come to them and tells them about Mm -hmm. a traumatic experience that they had or something you know maybe something recent maybe something from oh I was a kid 20 years ago when this happened Mm -hmm. and I give them this information when you're hearing that information you're thinking well let's take action let's you know get the cavalry going let's take them out let's you know let's make sure this never happens again but it's also very traumatic for the person who came to you to tell you privately what happened to them so um how do you recommend encouraging victims of abuse to you know to hold their their abuser accountable accountable to maybe share in a way that is going to help you know, prevent this from happening to someone else. What does that process look like? Is there a way to have that conversation that's not, you know, that doesn't feel like it's a violation of the trust that they just gave to you? Because that's such an important thing is like not to, you know, when someone tells you something that took maybe 20 years for them to be able to tell anybody, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to just be like, well, here's what you need to do with your trauma and your experience. So can you talk a little bit about that and what to do if someone does come to you with, with a story of, you know, being abused or assaulted, raped, you know, any of those traumatic experiences that we've talked about? 
I know it looks different so for many... you specifically because you're coming from the professional side. So I was curious from that. Right, right. But there have been situations where somebody might say, you know, my, I just learned that my sister or my brother went through, you know, this was so-and-so and so did I, but we didn't even know. And, or I don't want to get, you know, obviously specific with my own clients, but um, someone coming out of a trafficking situation and being contacted later uh, to be a witness, those mm. types of things. The first order of business is the person's own health. Yeah. And they have to be so grounded and, and healthy to be able to go through that because of the culture that's been put around it. Mm. And so, you know, my first go-to is you don't owe anybody anything mm. except yourself. Right. And if that's something that you want to try to pursue, then first get educated about it. Find out how people have done it well. It's like any other topic. If you don't know how it works, find out how it works first before you can even <laughs> consider making any kind of decision. Yeah. It's the same process if someone wants to confront a perpetrator later in life. They, one of the things I tend to tell people is you need to not need anything from them. Mm. If you can't check that box, it's not time. Because if so, you're just getting, you're just, again, pursuing validation from exactly. that person. Instead of and the power yourself. differential is still in place. Yeah. Mm, wow. So there's so many layers there, but I think, you know, one of the key things I would say is educate yourself. Talk to people who've successfully been through it. Talk to, um, to even attorneys who have helped people go through that. You know, that's not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse would be supporting that person. But yeah. do you want to? And then what's the process? And there's so many steps between, you know, yeah. between here and there. Right. And so it's not something that has to be done tomorrow. I mean, usually. And right. a lot of times, you know, you're, you're not going to have, based on history, you're not going to have the results that you want anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so to go through that is why we have the situation that we do with why people don't come forward yeah, or why they have to come forward with like 20 people behind them. Right. And yeah. And a million pieces of evidence and a million pieces of, you know, yeah. testimony. And then the person's still going to get 90 days in a correctional facility and exactly. then be back out. So yeah, it's definitely, I think you're kind of hitting on this. It's a messy system. And I think, I think what you're, as long as I'm understanding correctly, I think what you're really hitting on is like the person's mental health is the priority yes. in most cases, more so than, or probably in all cases, more so than it is, um, you know, it's, it's, a, you don't want to sign a time crunch to someone to address their trauma. I guess right. is the thing of like in the next yeah. 90 days, we only have 90 days. You need to figure this out and then be able to talk mm -hmm. about it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I, I was curious from your perspective like how that works and um you know because because i just i've had people on the show like i've probably i mean i get hundreds of messages like seriously my inbox like sometimes i want to mm -hmm. just post a screenshot of my inbox just blowing up and it's it's crazy like and i have a lot of people like half of those people will just say hey i love your show it's helped me like actually process what happened and, and hearing someone went through something similar has been really helpful for me 
I'm not ready to share my story. I don't know if I ever will be, but I wanted to tell you my story. And like, that means the world, like that, Mm. I don't take that lightly at all when people call and share that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but sometimes I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I, I always just say, if you ever do want to pursue anything, I do know a lawyer. I do know this person. I do know people that could help, but I just think it's really important to let them just be able to like, just be able to share that. Like, like that Mm -hmm. could be the thing that they need to just be able to keep going. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was really interested to hear from your perspective, like, what because because sometimes I do I get off the phone I'm like should I push them more to like Mm. hey hey maybe you should really pursue this or maybe you should see like especially in cases where it's really hard it's like I know that person's still a pastor I know that person's still Mm. a you know um so it really is it's it's difficult and it's never one every case is different so it's always hard to to make that call but um I really appreciated that that answer that's really helpful we could definitely do round two three four five and six of this Mm. one um there's there's, so much yeah there's a ton um and I I do you know depending on your scheduling I'd love to have you come on again in a future date and maybe go through I've got a host of questions that I could ask you um but I, I definitely I encourage everyone who's listening just to check out your resources, to look at mm-hmm. what you're posting. You post really helpful articles. Um, and, you know, I, I think you're going to be putting out even more content that's going to be helpful to people, yeah. um, obviously, through the YouTube channel and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Um, like I said, it always feels like you could talk forever about this stuff. Um, but I, I hope people connect with you. And I, I know, I know there's a couple of things you said that were really helpful for me um, as far as, as far as this goes. So thank you so much for, for doing that. Well, I, I hope your process is, is what you need it to be. Just mm-hmm. like I, I offer that to everyone else, you know, each of our processes is, is unique. And, um, but I think as long as we have one, and we're on board with, you know, validating ourselves, validating our emotions, validating our experience, that that, that is even going to help our, our, our physical, mental, and spiritual health. Mm. Hey, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast with Claire Horner. Definitely remember to connect with her on her social platforms and to check out the content that she's putting out there. I know there's a ton of great value. Um, but I also would ask that if you enjoy the show, please be sure to go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and review. It just helps more people discover the show within the iTunes uh, podcast app. And uh, be sure to share this with a friend who it may be helpful to. I know there's a lot of good information that was given that's going to be beneficial to a lot of people. So be sure to check that out. And remember, if you want to support the show, you can head over to PreacherBoysDoc.com. There's a lot of ways you can get involved, uh, both raising awareness and financially supporting the show and the work that's being done here. So be sure to check that out and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.